Hi, this is David Bedford, Beatles author and historian. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Jay Bergen. For 45 years, Jay was a New York City trial lawyer, and he represented, among others, the New York Yankees. Terry Knight, who was the manager of Grand Funk Railroad, and Albert Grossman, who was the manager of Bob Dylan, amongst others. But his real claim to fame was his representation of John Lennon in the so-called Roots lawsuit with the infamous and mobbed-up Morris Levy of Roulette Records, which Jay covers in his book called Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer. We'll get the whole story today. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make the song choice relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen my song called The Rescue from the Queen's Carnival album by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I use this song? Well, Jay rescued John Lennon from the clutches of the mob and Morris Levy. So I thought it fit. So Jay Bergen, welcome to the Folly of Dream podcast. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it. And I think your song, The Rescue, fits this perfectly. Terrific. All right. So you've had an interesting career as a lawyer, and you represented Lennon, of course, and we're going to get into that. But I wanted to touch base on some of the others that you represented as well. I'm fascinated by the fact that you represented the New York Yankees. Was this in the uh, Steinbrenner era? Tell us about what you did there. Oh, it certainly was. I started representing the Yankees in 1988 and continued until... 1996, when um, I got fired by George. <laughs> One of many that got fired by George. Well, I describe it, Robert, as a, a long list of people, many of whom are in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Not that I'll be on the in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but I'm on that list. Were you able to hit the curveball, Jay? That's what I want to know. <laughs> All right. So what did you do for George Steinbrenner? Well... One of the first things I did was I started representing George in 1988 uh, in connection with the salary arbitrations that were done every year in February between the player and the club before a player had three years of service in Major League Baseball. So I did those for, for George for a number of years. I handled a number of other pieces of litigation for them. Uh, for the Yankees. And uh, I spent time with George and you and I could spend probably hours talking about George Steinbrenner. I can imagine. You know, if if you think back on it, he paid $10 million for the New York Yankees in the early 70s. 
If that team was on the market today, they'd probably get $10 billion for it. What an investment, huh? Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. All right. And one of the great things about being a lawyer for George Steinbrenner, I'm sure there was no lack of events and litigation for you to get involved with, because this guy was a litigious guy. Well, he was not only litigious, but he wasn't a particularly good businessman, Robert, just between uh, you, me, and your uh, vast audience, because George was, uh, was notorious for signing like little side deals with his players on a napkin, you know, that would have been at a paper napkin at a restaurant someplace. And after a player was traded, suddenly he would come up with, well, but what about my, this extra $5 million I'm supposed to be paid? And here's the, the agreement with George. The napkin. <laughs> he wouldn't file any of those with the uh, the league office. Oh, man, must have been a lot of fun. All right, let's move on a little bit. You represented Albert Grossman, one of the greatest managers of artists and musicians in particular. He managed Bob Dylan. He also managed Peter, Paul, and Mary. I had Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul, and Mary on the podcast before. Tell us a little bit about what you did for Albert. Well, Albert and, and Bob, after uh, they separated and went in other directions, Apparently, they had an agreement that would call for Albert to continue to get a cut of all the songs that Bob wrote when they were together and the record albums. And at some point, and I think it was about 1980, Bob had an accounting firm uh, who told him, stop paying Albert. Just stop paying him. And Bob did. And so we had a lawsuit in uh, in New York, uh, and that went on for uh, a couple of years. I took Bob's deposition. Every question I asked Bob, when he answered it, he ended it by saying, "Sir, I don't remember that, sir. I don't I don't know what what the purpose of the sir was, but uh, it's very proper. I like that." <laughs> All right. And I assume at the end of the day, somehow or other, he got paid some money and uh, that's how it all got resolved. Well, I, no, I, I, don't, I don't know, because Albert decided to, to also sue the uh, accounting firm. And then he claimed that I was not moving the case fast enough. Uh, and so I was replaced. But then I'm sure you know the story that Albert flew to uh, meet him. He was going over to meet him, the big music industry conference in Cannes every year. And uh, he flew over on the Concorde a couple of days early so he could watch the Super Bowl in London. And when the plane landed in London, Albert had died in his sleep. Oh, no, I, I did not know that story. On the plane. Uh-huh. Listen, the music industry is filled with litigation of artists that claim that they didn't get paid their royalties, of managers that claim that they should be getting paid off of the artists, et cetera. <laughs> a wealth of opportunity for lawyers, right? Yes, absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the biggest case. And this was your representation of John Lennon. Let me just set the scene if I can. John Lennon recorded an album that was a rock and roll covers album. And he happened to uh, share a copy of this, which was a huge mistake, with Morris Levy, 
who, as I said in my introduction, was mobbed up to the hilt, and I'm sure you'll go into this. And Levy was trying to rip him off and release that album separately as a John Lennon album. And that's when you got involved in the litigation that transpired between the two. Have I summarized it a little bit accurately, at least? No, yes, yes. Except for one thing, the two reel-to-reel tapes that John gave Morris uh, of the album were unfinished and unmixed so that what turned out to be really kind of uh, a mess, it was an unfinished uh, album. And you're right. That was a big mistake uh, that John made. But one of the things I learned about John uh, representing him was that he found it very difficult, Robert, to say no to people. And Morris kept kept kind of hounding him, saying, you know, I want to listen to my three songs because John was supposed to record three songs owned by Morris Levy's publishing company. And one of them had to be You Can't Catch Me. Hold on one second. Go into the reason why he had to record three songs. Well, Morris in 1970 uh, brought one of his his trademark bogus copyright infringement cases, claiming that the lyrics from Come Together, which was on Abbey Road and was the first single written by John, infringed several words in the Chuck Berry hit you can't catch me. Right. And the, the case kind of dawdled along. And finally, uh, when John started recording the rock and roll cover album that he was going to do, the case was coming to trial. John didn't want to be involved. So the settlement was on your next album, on this rock and roll album, you will record three of my songs, Morris Levy's songs. So that's why... John gave him the the tapes, according to what Morris said was, I want a reel-to-reel tape so that I can listen to it on the tape recorder in my office. For anybody who doesn't know, and his name, Morris Levy's name, has come up in this podcast before because one of my guests was Tommy James. And Tommy James was, uh, in a sense, he was made by Morris Levy and Roulette Records because they were the primary artists on that label and um, they pushed him to the hilt in terms of all the hits that came out by Tommy James but of course they didn't pay him any of the money Morris kept all of that for him and for his mob beneficiaries so finding out that Morris Levy was trying in any way to rip off John Lennon is nothing new in the industry he was infamous in the industry wasn't he he was he was and his silent partners were all members of the, the mafia, one after another. Angelo, Gip DiCarlo. Um, you know, anytime you went to Morris's office, apparently, uh, in those glory years where you'd bump into one of the wise guys. You know, you reminded me of a funny statement that one of George Steinbrenner's uh, limited partners made about him. He said, there's nothing more limited than being a limited partner of George Steinbrenner. You remember that line? Yes. He was the owner of the New York Islanders who said that. <laughs> All right. So anyway, getting back to John Lennon. So here John is out there creatively trying to do an album of rock and roll covers. All of a sudden, he gets ripped off by Morris Levy. Tell us what happened after that. 
Well, Morris decided that he was going to release this album on TV, you know, because he had this company, Animate, that kind of where he would sell these compilation albums and you'd send in your 598 and Morris's company would uh, would mail it to you. So I got involved just before he did this. Um, I met John at a meeting at Capitol Records. Uh, I didn't know he was going to be there. I was halfway through this meeting with a group of Capitol lawyers and suddenly the door opened to the conference room and in walked John Lennon. At that meeting, we decided that John would go in and finish the rock and roll album. This was February 3rd, 1975, in the next two days, and Capitol would release it as quickly as possible. And once Capitol did that on about February 13th, Morris pulled the advertising that he was doing on TV for Roots. And then about a week or 10 days later, sued John Capital and EMI in a New York Supreme Court case. A couple of weeks after that, Robert, when he got no reaction from John about, I think I think he was trying to bully John into a settlement and that John would get Capital and EMI would agree to make some deal with them. Well, when that didn't work with the first action, he then filed a federal court action uh, alleging a violation of the antitrust laws and, and a claiming $14 million in damages. Uh, a ridiculous, a ridiculous amount uh, of money. There was no way he was going to be able to prove that. And that second lawsuit turned out to be uh, a fatal mistake by Morris. Well, you know, going back to what you said about John Lennon, he's one of the greatest artists that we've ever seen. And I'm sure he had no intention of, of course, giving an album to Morris Levy. He had no intention of getting involved in the business side of things. This must have been a total shock to his system. Am I right? It was. And, and you're right about John. Uh, he had no interest in the business side. Uh, in fact, Klaus Vorman, one of his oldest friends, and the bass player, uh, when when I interviewed him before the trial as a possible witness, he said, John is naive about business. He just doesn't understand it and he doesn't want to be involved in it. So so he was shocked, but he decided that he had made a mistake settling the copyright infringement case with Morris. And he decided that in this case, he was going to stand his ground. And, and and you know, Robert, this was right around the time uh, in early 1975 that John dropped out of the music business and got back with Yoko Ono. So I had his undivided attention. Whenever I needed to, to talk to John or meet with him, he was committed. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician in addition to hosting this Follow Your Dream podcast. In fact, I just released my 13th album, all since I followed my dream after I turned 60. The album is called It's Alive, and it's a live recording by my band, Project Grand Slam, featuring 13 of our greatest hits, 
recorded at festivals in Pennsylvania and Serbia. The reviewers have called it a masterpiece and an instant classic. I introduced this album through a podcast episode, which has now been downloaded by thousands of listeners from over 120 countries, which shows the power and worldwide reach of this podcast. When I began the podcast, I had no idea where it would go, but here we are just over two years later, and the podcast is ranked in the top 1% with listeners in 200 countries. It's been a joyride for me, my guests, and for my thousands of listeners. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And you must visit our website at followyourdreampodcast.com to check out all of our episodes, our famous guests, and much more. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, so tell us a little bit about your impressions of John Lennon at that time. This is after the Beatles had broken up. This is when he's out on his own as a recording artist. I guess it was after that long weekend, so to speak, where he uh, had left uh, Yoko Ono and was out in Los Angeles. Now he's coming back. He's doing a recording. Tell us what your impressions of John were at that time. Well, you know, first of all, he didn't leave Yoko. Yoko kicked him out uh, in the summer of 1973 and pushed him into the arms of the beautiful 25 or 26-year-old May Pang. And off he went on what he later described as his lost weekend. But by the time I met him, he had also recorded and released Walls and Bridges, which was his last solo album of songs written by him. And if anybody listens to that, that, that album, you can see that John was really in a very sad, difficult place uh, in his life. But, but once he got back with Yoko and she became pregnant, my impression of John was that he was happy. He was chilled out. I never saw him smoke a cigarette, although I heard he had a, an addiction to, to cigarettes. Uh, I never saw him uh, take a drink. Uh, I never heard him use a curse word. And we spent a lot of time together. Sure you were with the right John Lennon? I was with <laughs> not John Lennon, Robert, the, the the rock and roll icon. I was with John Lennon, the person who was living in New York City, loved New York City. Uh, I took him to uh, the Oyster Bar in Grand Central Station for lunch one day where he had never been. I took him to the Waldorf Astoria, where he'd never been. All right, hold on. What was it like? You take him to the Oyster Bar, which is a public restaurant in Grand Central Station. Was he recognized? He was only recognized in the restaurant. Uh, he had never been in Grand Central Station. And so when we walked in on the uh, entrance off Vanderbilt Avenue and stood on the balcony overlooking the room, John was was just enthralled with this spectacularly 
beautiful, the main area, the main waiting room where the information booth was and everything. And we wandered around the uh, the downstairs part of that where the ticket booths are and everything. And I don't know whether anybody recognized them, but nobody bothered them. And it wasn't until we went downstairs another level to the oyster bar when we were being shown to our table, John said, tell him we want a table against the wall. So we headed over towards the south wall. And then John said, Jay, you sit with your back to the wall and I'll sit where I, I'm facing you so I won't be facing the room. And I said, fine. But a couple of busboys came over right away and asked for an autograph. And John, very politely, he had one rule, Robert, about autographs, not while I'm eating. Interesting. I'll give you an, an autograph as soon as I finish uh, eating. And he did that. And it was the same way when I took him to the Bull and the Bear in the Waldorf Astoria, where he'd never been to that place. And, you know, no, no, nobody bothered him. You know, think about the fact that you're with one of the most famous people in the world one of the most recognized people, one of the most worshipped people in the world. And think about the life that somebody like that has where they can't go or they don't feel comfortable going to all the different places that you never even think about going because, you know, you're, you're never going to be hassled in the same way. So in a sense, you were like a guide for him in New York City, weren't yes. you? Because he loved the city. And the day we were going to the uh, the Bull and the Bear and, and the Waldorf, we were walking up the east side of Park Avenue. It was a beautiful May day right after his deposition had, had ended. And all of a sudden, this woman stops in front of us, Robert, and says, middle-aged woman says, you're George Harrison. And John, and John <laughs> who had a spectacular sense of humor, said, Yes, I am. Thank you. And I, I'm telling you, I, I bet all the money I have, which isn't a lot, but that if she had asked for an autograph, he would have signed George Harrison. <laughs> oh, that's funny. He was just very relaxed and happy. Isn't that nice to hear? Well, of course, everybody knows that in 1980, he was assassinated. I was one of the millions of people that was watching uh, Monday Night Football when Howard Cosell came on the air and announced that John Lennon had been shot. And of course, it staggered everybody. Tell us where you were when you heard that news. I was in bed, fast asleep in New Jersey, and I got a call from a friend in the Midwest who had been watching the Johnny Carson show, which was interrupted. And he said to me, uh, John's been shot, Jay, and I think he's dead. Turn on the TV. And I did. I was in shock. Uh, I watched it for a few minutes. Uh, once it was clear that he was, that he was gone. And then I got back in the, in the bed, and before I fell asleep, I picked up the phone and I called Jimmy Iovine, who had been an assistant engineer at the record plant at the time and who was very, very close to John 
and really kind of worshiped John. And I knew that he was in uh, the Cherokee Studios in Los Angeles recording the follow-up Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers album uh, to uh, Damn the Torpedoes. And all Jimmy said when I got on the phone, when I said, Jimmy, I got bad news. John Lennon's been shot and he's dead. All I heard was, oh, my God. And the phone went dead. Yeah. I think so many of us had that kind of reaction. And the the groundswell of love and support that came out immediately after, for anybody that was in New York City, it was the whole city stopped. It was almost paralyzed by the news of John's death. Um, it was one of those situations where you just remember where you were the moment that you heard about something like that. Yes. Just showed you what kind of a remarkable impact that that man had on the world. And he probably didn't realize it either. Well, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book, Robert, was because this story about this brief time in John's life when I knew him, 75 to 77, and when we spent a lot of time together, and he gave fascinating testimony, which is in my book about how he made records. Nobody had ever told this story. And I realized five or six years ago when I started writing the book that no one could because I was there and I had all of the transcripts from the trial. And that's why I put so much of John's testimony uh, into the book, because first of all, it tells this fascinating uh, untold story about, you know, he may have done thousands of interviews, but he never talked like this and, and explained this. And, you know, secondly, his sense of humor comes out during his testimony. And he's obviously very relaxed. Which is interesting because, you know, when you're testifying in court, you're not exactly in a colloquial setting that's conducive to, uh, you know, having your personality come out. You're kind of uptight about the whole thing. So if he came across as a real human being and with a good sense of humor in that instance, think what he would have been like outside of a courtroom. Right, right. And the other thing is, Robert, he and Yoko came to every day of the trial, 20 days spread over January. March and April of 1976. And I think one of the reasons he was really such a great witness was aside from the fact that he was very smart and we had gone over the facts uh, repeatedly, was that he had been there in the courtroom so that the judge knew that he was really interested and concerned about this case. He'd been there every day and he also saw all the witnesses testify and saw how the judge handled the trial. So th that was just key that he and, he and Yoko came uh, every day and he paid attention. And I think you probably read the part of the book where Bob Gruen sneaked a camera into the courtroom and took two pictures, uh, one of which is in the book, of John testifying on the witness stand. So for everybody out in the audience who are kind of waiting with bated breath, tell us how this all ended with the litigation. Well, Morris Levy had claimed that John had made an agreement with him to sell the album on TV on a worldwide basis. The big problem, Robert, was there was nothing in writing. So the first part of the case 
we won in turn, and the judge found that there was Morris had absolutely no basis in the, in the law for releasing the Roots album. And then John and Capital and EMI counterclaimed against John for damages because, you know, Morris put out this competitive album and he wound up uh, being being found liable for over $400,000 in damages. Now, Capital and EMI settled behind my back and John's back for $170,000, and we had to defend the whole appeal. We won the appeal. John's damages were released, but this was a real blow to Morris Levy because, first of all, he paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in attorney's fees. He had finally had to pay John uh, about $90,000 in damages, and he had to turn over to John all of the unsold albums, the Roots albums, and the eight-track tapes. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, justice prevailed, you prevailed, and John Lennon prevailed. It's quite a story. We have been speaking here with Jay Bergen, a lawyer who represented John Lennon. Jay has written a marvelous book, which I have read, called Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer. I want to thank you, Jay, for being on this podcast and telling your story. I appreciate it very much, Robert. Enjoyed it. And now we are going to listen to that song that started off the episode. It's my song called The Rescue. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.